This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I guess if you want, you know, if you're the president of the United States and uh, you want to uh, draw attention away from the Fire and Fury book and uh, all the sort of bad things that happened around that and Sloppy Steve and so on and so forth, you just start swearing and calling countries assholes and such. Because uh, it certainly does change the conversation. Let's bring in Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, do you think this is the ultimate distraction from fire and fury, or is just fire and fury burnt out? Well, unfortunately for for Donald Trump, I don't think this is a distraction from fire and fury. Uh, I think this is a distraction from what should have been one of the best days of his presidency, when, because of his tax plan, Walmart, one of the largest employers in the country, was able to offer uh, about 2 million Americans a pay raise. I wonder if Kathleen Wynne got wind of that. <laughs> you know, isn't that uh, isn't that? I mean, just to uh, localize that story, uh, really uh, uh, quite amazing because this this should be uh, great fodder for uh, businesses, chambers of commerce in Ontario to look what Donald Trump did, his actions leading to a natural increase in the uh, wages of Walmart employees instead of through artificial means. Uh, well, and Walmart was very vocal about that, weren't they? Absolutely, and they weren't the first one. And uh, so, first of all, and, and, why don't you explain the story, Michael? Tell the whole story. So, so yesterday, Walmart, uh, in a brilliant PR move, because I was told earlier this morning that apparently they also announced a bunch of layoffs uh, with 67 or something Sam's Club locations uh, closing, but they announced uh, a few things. Increased benefits for employees, so the opposite of what we're seeing at Tim Hortons here in Ontario. Increased wages, not because of a increase to the minimum wage, but because of uh, their ability to now just increase wages on their own because of the Donald Trump and GOP uh, uh, tax cuts uh, for corporations. And finally, a one-time bonus payment to all employees. So even employees in states like Washington State, for example, where I believe the minimum wage is $11.20, they'll still get that one-time bonus payment being made to all employees uh, of Walmart, nearly uh, over 2 million Americans. So for Donald Trump and Republicans running uh, for re-election for congressional spots in the the, uh, House and Senate this fall, they should be able to be going out there and talking about how, how, uh, you know, uh, this tax bill, which the Democrats were uh, very pessimistic about, is is, raise, is, is increasing uh, pay for many Americans. And instead, we're talking about Donald Trump's potty mouth. And what's it? Uh, wh- what does it say when a company like Walmart sort of endorses the president that way? Because they were very blatantly said it was due to his tax cut that's allowed them to do that. Well, absolutely. And you although that, have- I'm sure a certain amount of that smoke and mirrors in PR anyway. Well, you know, and Walmart's not the first company to say that. We had we had others before Christmas, right after the uh, uh, the the bill was passed by by the Congress, uh, making similar announcements. And if we we don't have to go back very far to remember the present CEO council mass resignations because people were embarrassed to be associated with them. But now the GOP actually should be having this great narrative that it doesn't matter. You know, the president is he a buffoon? Maybe does he say things that we wish he wouldn't say? Absolutely. It's is he a little goofy? Sure. But he's done some pretty solid stuff. But instead, uh, you know, between fire and fury and his potty mouth, uh, the headlines are, uh, are are all about things that are not on his narrative. So uh, getting, to the po- uh, getting to the potty mouth, um, 
how is this being received? I guess we're at the point now, Michael, where everybody just shakes their head and nobody's really surprised. Well, you know, the United Nations is, of course, uh, appalled. And I'm sure in faculty lounges across the United States, people are just saying, I don't know how this guy's president. I don't know anyone who voted for him, much like they did about Richard Nixon once upon a time. But I think for, you know, a lot of uh, regular, severely normal Americans, to borrow a phrase from uh, the late Ralph Klein, um, are, are probably one, they don't care at all to uh, some of these countries you talked about, they probably couldn't uh, identify on an unmarked map. Uh, three, if they have any opinion, they, they likely don't disagree with the presence on it. So I don't think this is going to have any uh, negative impact on him or on his base. But again, unfortunately, he's distracting from something that should be the best story of his presidency. Uh, would he not have aides that would say to him, um, of course he would, why am I asking, uh, you know, this is a, a real solid story here with the Walmart thing, so just keep hammering this all day. Don't talk about anything else. Absolutely, and you know what, I mean, you, you got to feel for his staff because they definitely realize what a great day and great story this should be, because it is, and uh, I have to think to a friend of mine who was once managing a campaign for a candidate who was completely unruly, and if he said, if he said one thing, the candidate would do the other, and a Eventually, to get him to stick to his lines during an all-candidates meeting, my friend actually bet the candidate that he'd be unable to stick to his lines, so he stuck <laughs> to his lines. I mean, if you're playing these sort of games, you're, you know, you're, you're losing and you're wasting energy, but uh, maybe that's what the uh, Trump staffers have to do because, you know, uh, the president certainly thinks he knows best. And why did he call uh, these places that name? Um, no filter, uh, you know, he wanted to, you know, he, he, he may have, you know, wanted to create a distraction, but I don't know from what, from his great success that he had yesterday. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons he could have done it uh, or, or may have done it, but uh, none of them really make sense. Uh, he also might think that, you know, all of the fancy people, all of the professors, uh, all of the media is going to be appalled by this, but, you know, the Trump base is going to love it. Maybe that's what he thought. I, I don't know that it, it certainly wasn't wise, uh, but I, I don't think uh, you're going to see a ton of people uh, criticizing him. For it. And he's complaining about the immigration policy in which operates on a lottery system. Is that correct? Look, I mean, Donald Trump will complain about every immigration system uh, that's been proposed before him. Because, because I heard him say, I heard him make reference a while ago that what they were looking for, it was something that was more like Canada's, in which, you know, we actually pick the people that we, we bring in. So, you know, it, it, is that the scenario where he's looking for something like that as opposed to a lottery system? Exactly. In fact, it was very amusing because there was a lot of people in Canada who, who didn't like Donald Trump's announcement. And then uh, they had people, you know, uh, academics point it to them. No, uh, this is actually what Canada does, and Canada has a really pretty solid, there's certainly room for improvement, and uh, I have my own thoughts on that, and I'm sure everyone everyone else does, but there's sure, certainly room for improvement in any system. But Canada has a really good base, and that's what the United States is looking towards, and Donald Trump, uh, by even some Canadian observers, was called racist for doing what we do here. Yeah, and, and again, it just, there you go, it just comes back to the presentation, doesn't it? I mean, you know, everybody's screaming and yelling about what he's saying, but it's exactly, the, he's looking for exactly what we're doing here. You know, if George, Jeb Bush or John Kasich or Hillary Clinton 
or even Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden were sitting in the Oval Office right now, and we had the stock market where it was at, we had jobs coming back where that, we had illegal border crossings at a for recent times uh, at a historic low for recent times, uh, all these things, and then we had Walmart come out and say because of the president's great economic plan and tax cuts, we are giving every employee at Walmart a raise. If you had any of those other people as president right now, they would be they would be there would be calls to start carving them into Mount Rushmore because hmm. on a lot of, you know, he, he moving the embassy. I think it's great. The embassy in Israel on a lot of policy matters. This president has performed. A lot of people are going to say he got lucky. A lot of people are going to say it's because of his unique brilliance. You know, there's there's no uh, there's no middle ground when it comes to Donald Trump. You're going to have two polls there. But at the end of the day, I mean, the proof's in the pudding and there's a lot of successes of this administration. But then he gets in his way. So instead of talking <laughs> about Walmart, we're talking about what he said about these countries that a lot of folks don't think about ever. So is the fuss over fire and fury over? Is that is that we moved on to the next news cycle now, this being the, uh, you know, the S-bomb? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, that that's uh, that's probably an accurate reflection. I think um, um, Michael Wolf's been, uh, you know, when you have George Stephanopoulos on ABC last Sunday, you know, talking about it, and he said, you know, Maybe this book, at best case scenario, is 50% accurate. And then one of the panelists, Matthew Dowd, who certainly know, you know, traditionally a Republican, but not, not a fan of Donald Trump by any extent, uh, interjected to say that he thought that was generous. I think, you know, you see, you have a lot of salacious stories and some of them are undoubtedly true, but there's, there's a cloud over it. So I don't think it's gonna, you know, be all that uh, damaging to the president. So, yeah, uh, people are. Well, I think on. it already. I, I think we've already seen the fallout in the sense that Steve Bannon's out of there. So, I mean, you know, salacious or not, it certainly brought Steve Bannon down. It brought Steve Bannon down, and I think yeah, for you know a lot of Republicans uh, on the more establishment side of the party are going to be thrilled about that. You know, if Steve Bannon isn't going to be able to do what he did in Alabama now because the president's distanced himself and get the most unelectable candidate in the state nominated for a Senate seat, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe the uh, impact of fire and fury is going to be uh, a net benefit to uh, the Republicans. He said, uh, getting back to the uh, the raunchy comment, Donald Trump said he didn't say it. Did he say it? Do we know if he did? Who 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 actually reported this? How do we hear it? So, look, do you think he said it? Does it sound like something he would say? So <laughs> it's not it like him. It's not like him at all, Michael. It's totally out of character. Yeah, Donald Trump is always very uh, judicious in his comments. So, no, he he he. Of course, he said it. Let's let's be realistic here. He shouldn't pretend to have not said it. He should own it because that's that's his brand. Um, you know, the leaks continue. It's not just sloppy Steve's fault. So there, there's other, there's other, uh, you know, it's not just sloppy Steve or Sean Bannon or Ryan. So they have to, you know, fix the plumbing a bit uh, in the office. So, of course, he said it. He shouldn't pretend not to have said it. And even if he didn't say it, it doesn't matter because it's so believable that he said it. Uh, everyone's going to everyone's gonna take it in value. All right. So uh, what about the visit to London? I mean, uh, Theresa May was over into the United States, visited Washington soon after his uh, inauguration and such. Uh, there's been chatter for a long time that he's going over there. Uh, and, and now he says the reason he's not going is because he's ticked off about uh, the embassy or whatever, uh, which I understand was moved because of something that George Bush started in motion. What's all this about? So, look, you know, the, it, it's amazing. Donald Trump has been 
been able to unify uh, every party, in, with the exception of UKIP, which I think only has one or two seats, but every party in the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, the royal family, the media, everyone agrees that, you know, uh, they're just not fans of, uh, uh, of the president. So it's, uh, for, from his perspective, you know, uh, he's, he's, toxic there uh so yeah he's not going to be going he earlier one of the uh sort of fights on uh him going was he wanted a uh, trip in the uh, royal royal carriage uh and they, they weren't prepared to do that for security <laughs> reasons so he was never like he, he wanted to go for the pomp and the ceremony but not not necessarily uh, actually uh international relations so no great loss this is a guy who seems to be most comfortable uh not not well touring so no great loss for anyone and i think for uh, Theresa may she's uh, politically dodged a bullet by having to stand at a podium with donald trump uh i i think it'd be more apropos if she was in the carriage he was following along in a golf cart perhaps um, <laughs> and uh, well the secret service will have to rent their golf cup yeah exactly they're running beside the him exactly so um but at the end of the day i mean this is an ally so how can uh, like you know it's been a while when when is going to be a good time um, and, and why do you think this visit's over? Do you think because A, Trump camp looks over there and say, this is unfriendly waters, we don't want to go near this, this is just a, you know, this is going to be a terrible news story. Like, wh- who pulled that? So what do you think happened here? I think both sides, it was probably, you know, uh, the decision, however it came about, certainly a mutual sigh of relief. I mean, from, from Trump's perspective, absolutely, you never want to send your candidate, your your boss, your president, your minister into a situation where they're going to be uh, received hostile and that the the news clippings are going to be people booing or throwing rocks and tomatoes at them. So, uh, And then from Theresa May's perspective, you know, absolutely also, uh, she's dodged a bullet by having to avoid pleasantries with a guy who's toxic in her country. But you're, you are right at some point the president's going to need to go visit uh visit allies and he you know he might get a hero's welcome in israel right now but it's hard to think of anywhere else on earth where he'll be received like that so he hasn't come to ottawa uh yet i think he's the first president who has not made that trip in the first year uh of his presidency and uh that's also an incredibly important relation for both countries and uh, there seems to be no rush from uh, our prime minister to to get the president up here so it's uh, and you can't blame him politically either so you know, it, it has to happen at some time, but uh, who's gonna who's gonna go first? It's like a bad house guest. If nobody wants them, why invite them? Really, exactly. But the thing that I'm thinking here, Michael, is this ain't gonna get any easier. And the longer he stays away, the more obvious it's gonna be. The more he draws attention to the fact. So, and as we move towards midterm elections, and then you know what campaign after that for, for the presidency, how does this become easier? Well, you know, it doesn't become easier, but politically, domestically in the United States, does it become more problematic? And, and I'm not sure it does. You know, if, if, if if he if he's able to see you know the i i ran to make america great again i ran to put america first and then i did and the rest of the world hates me that's a narrative that could work for the guy yeah good point yeah i mean do americans care what the rest of the world thinks of trump you know and it it gets back to in david Frum's book about george w bush that he wrote uh, after he left the white house there was there was a lot about uh, 
the perceived slight of Canada um, in uh, after September 11th, which a lot of Canadians were rightly disappointed in, and uh, how David Frum characterized had the relationship between Canada and the United States, and I think you could look at that between the United States and all of their allies, is it, it's uh, like the rivalry between Harvard and Yale. They don't think about it at Harvard very much, and I think, you know, for the United States, they don't really think about what we think about them yeah. all that much. <laughs> Good point. They don't even know you're there. Uh, what about his reason for not going in and, and such? Uh, how, how does he do that? And, and like even the reason, even though it's factually, I guess, incorrect, um, it, it uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like a, a very strong reason not to meet an ally. Look, I mean, he he gets away with so much more than, you know, if Barack Obama did this, uh, business leader and uh, reality TV star Donald Trump would be taking to Twitter just eviscerating the guy over, you know, he'd call him weak, he'd call him a liar, he you know, there'd be, there'd be no end to it. But for some reason, uh, Donald Trump gets away with things that no other elected official would ever get away with, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's all on style, not on substance. I can't let you go, Michael, without asking you your thoughts on, uh, and this is a, a complete 180, on the situation with Tim Hortons and the reaction to minimum wage. Uh, how long is this story going to be in the news, do you think? Oh, look, I mean, I think once uh, the protesters see that there's uh, no dip, because I don't believe for a minute that any of these protesters were your uh, Tim Hortons target audience, uh, that there's no dip in sales at Tim Hortons, they're going to move on. And I think the real villain in this. I mean, you know, it's easy to blame Kathleen Wynn, but let's move beyond that. It's Restaurants Brand International that has put their franchise owners in such a terrible position, in my opinion. You know, these people had to, uh, something had to give. They had a a 20% increase in the cost of labor, so they either had to find a way to save money or charge their customers more. Restaurants Brand International let them charge more, so obviously they had to uh, do something to make ends meet. Uh, From a political standpoint, from Kathleen Wynn's uh, point of view, this was a win-win situation for her, do you not think? I actually think, yeah, this has worked out very well for her. Uh, if you think back to the last election, Kathleen Wynne didn't cite Andrea Horvath and Tim Hood. Actually, fought Stephen Harper, whose name wasn't on a ballot, and that allowed her to uh, to control the narrative. So if she's fighting, uh, you know, she wants to use uh, the billionaire uh, owners of what Tim Hortons franchise and the heirs of the founders out in Coburg as her catalyst to fight in the election. That's uh, not a bad position for her. All right, so uh, moving forward into 2018, where do you see the Trump presidency going? Are are things, you know, is it a turning point with the loss of Bannon? Uh, Do you think that that he's starting to catch a wave here, or do do you see this continuing to spiral out of control? You know, I think you're going to see both at the same time. You're going to see some policy successes. Uh, You're going to see a bit more... um, party unity and party discipline because of Steve Bannon's uh, ouster. Uh, But you're also going to see erratic behavior from the president that's going to be an unnecessary distraction. But at the end of the day, you're going to have congressional candidates this fall talking about the raises that people got because of the uh, GOP tax bill and uh, that they put money into people's pockets, and that's only going to help. Michael Diamond has been with this conservative political pundit talking uh, another edition of Twit This Week in Trump. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Talk to you soon. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. In case you haven't heard, $15 million to redesign your hydro bill. Wow. Uh, now, we all complained that, you know, we never knew where any of the money was going. So are they spending the $15 million to break it all down and tell us 
you know, how much we're overpaying and, and, and where it's all going and, and this sort of thing? Or is it just, you know, more pretty graphics and pictures? Uh, obviously, the NDP want the Premier to stop this plan that would force families to pay for the redesigned hydro bills. To talk more about this, Steve Alpin is with us. Uh, sorry, Applin. Steve Applin is with us, publisher of Emission Track and is on the line with us now. Steve, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Nice to be with you, Scott. So, Steve, we were always complaining that we don't know where the heck the money's going. Uh, you know, there's this fund, there's that fund, there's this, this, and we don't know what, what the adjustment stands for or what it means. Is this going to explain that? Is that no, what this is about? It, no, I don't think it will. I think it's what, what it's about is if you go to the spring of this year, there's going to be an election, and that's what it's about. So there's, uh, and you've heard, uh, I've heard the energy minister himself saying that he what he wants is for the Fair Hydro Act to be explained well on these bills. So that's kind of, and he's actually hydro- he's actually quoted as saying that in the meeting in in, yeah. in the media that the reason for this is so he he could explain the 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 whatever it's called the fair not so fair uh, energy plan. That's pure politics. That's pure politics. Yeah. In fairness to him, I don't I don't think he has direct control over this but this is this is what he's saying that he would like is uh, is an explanation on people's power bills uh, that of all the great things that the fair hydro act is going to do and the fair hydro act let's not forget go back a year uh, in the crisis over in the in the in the media crisis over uh, skyrocketing electricity prices the government brings in the fair hydro act which basically caps the increases in electricity, uh, electricity prices, and and uh, and no more winter disconnect from the local distribution companies. So, uh, what people don't realize, and what there is guaranteed to not be on these bills, if if the if the uh, OEB approves Hydro One's uh, um, ask, is why they need the Fair Hydro Act in the in in the first place. And second, what the Fair Hydro Act is doing is basically taking out a credit card on all our behalf, on our hour, the ratepayers' behalf. And putting, shoveling the cost of expensive wind and solar onto it, and it's one of those deals where you don't pay any interest for four years. But I'll guarantee you, in four years, we're going to get a bill, and we're going to start paying for it. So, uh, has anybody seen a template of this? What's the difference between the old bill and the new bill? Well, there's, there's, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they've, what they've, what they've uh, put forth. But I do know uh, something that uh, one of the opposition members said, Peter Tabbins of the NDP, not a guy I tend to agree with on, on anything, but I agree with him on this. He said, this is not about, you know, people don't have problems understanding their bill, understanding the breakdown of their bill. What they want to know is why, is why is it so high? That's what is not going to be explained on this. And, and the reason for that is, like I said, they've, they've uh, uh, shoehorned, wind and solar onto our grid to an absolutely ridiculous degree. And if you look at the contract prices that these generators are promised, uh, your head will spin. So it's, it's this kind of stuff that's not going to be uh, put front and center. We're about to have Andrea Horvath on. She wants to buy back all the shares of, of Hydro One and make it p- uh, public again. Is that the way to go? Uh, well, I don't know whether you can roll back deregulation. I, I'm kind of with her in thinking that the entire reg- deregulation exercise was a gigantic boondoggling mistake. I think that it was. I don't think that there's half the problems with the old regulated system that we had. We certainly didn't get price increases like we're seeing today. We certainly don't have 
uh, a huge, bewildering array of entities that used to be under Ontario Hydro that are now quasi-independent. Uh, so I'm kind of uh, with her on that. I don't know whether it's possible to roll it back and re-regulate it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's uh, possible to even roll back and re-regulate Hydro One. I mean, the, this 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 is something that that has gone forward. But I certainly understand her sentiment, and I certainly uh, under I certainly agree that this has not led to uh, a good deal for ratepayers. It's actually just led to increased costs. Why did we deregulate? Well, we deregulated in the 19... Uh, I've got a cynical answer to that. Yep. The reason we deregulated is because uh, because uh, that was kind of the vogue throughout North America. Some jurisdictions in the United States resisted this uh, to their great credit. There was just a drive that said that all regulated industries should be deregulated. There's not a good case, in my opinion, to deregulate electricity for a whole number of reasons, but... Uh, we jumped along with that fad and, and got into it. What about, uh, lots have complained that, you know, uh, prior to the the energy mistake that, that Wynn made, uh, that, you know, we had to put all this money into infrastructure, that for years governments weren't putting money into infrastructure uh, because nobody likes to have taxes raised and so on and so forth. So uh, at the end of the day, is it, when it was in public hands, no one wanted to spend public money to do it, and we needed capital uh, capital for infrastructure updates. That's how the private uh, sector got into this. So uh, would that be accurate, or was it privatization where this all started to go awry? I, th- I think that, that, it's, that it's not accurate to say that the reason why we needed to add all this expensive new uh, infrastructure o- over the past ten years was because it had been neglected for years and years. I don't, I don't buy that. Yeah. You know, we had an ice storm in 1998 where we had to replace massive amounts of infrastructure. Mm. Uh, I suppose that some of the debt from uh, that that eventually wound up in Hydro One, the transmission, the wires company, had to do with that, and that's that's fair enough. But I don't think that that explains the the overall. Um, overall. So did this start to get out of hand once it got into private hands, or was it getting out of control prior to it going into private hands? No, I think it got out of control once it, it, went once private. it became, became, became as politicized as it did. Prior to this, it was, it was a, you know, Ontario Hydro was a crown corporation, provincial crown corporation, kind of at arm's length to the government. The government did have some control over appointments and, and this kind of thing, but most of most of the time, it was it, it was a kind of a self-governing entity, and it, it did a fantastic job because it electrified our entire province. But what the the problem, as I see it, is excessive politi- politicization and uh, sort of. What do you energy. mean by when you say that? What specifically do you mean? I mean, well, people fighting over electricity, therefore, uh, all of a sudden, you know, the the private uh, sector becomes an option. What do you mean? Well, I, the, a a, a meme of entitlement of access to the grid Hmm. developed. Uh, In the late 1980s and early 1980s, we had the NUGS, the non-utility generators that Ontario Hydro resisted into the grid. Uh, and and there's it's basically the this this entitlement of people to generate power. And quite frankly, I disagree with that. I think that the that if that if there's a uh, vertically integrated utility, let them do that job. They did a really bang-up job of electrifying the grid and managing it up until then, I don't understand why people should be entitled to uh, generate power, especially, as we see now, 
Uh, we've got the cultural entitlement of power generation and access to the grid going down to people's rooftops. So every mm. homeowner is now entitled to generate power, yeah. not just generate power, Scott, but to make a profit. Yeah, sell it back. To, to me, that's crazy. It's it's they're guaranteed a profit because they're generating something that that the, that some politician thinks is warm and fuzzy, but it's not uh, it's not a. Uh, a efficient way to make power. It's not an affordable way to make power, and this is why we've seen rate increases. Steve Applin has been with us, publisher of Emission Track. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. All right, let's bring in Handria Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, and I might say that in polls, uh, as far as provincial leaders go, go it's the it, she's the leader that you love the best. Andrea, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's my pleasure, Scott, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Andrea, what's it like, uh, you know, before we get to the hydro, you're, you're the most popular, as, as far as polls say, you're the most popular provincial leader uh, that we have, Party, uh, your party not doing so well. How do you explain that, and, and how do you t- use that to your advantage moving forward? Well, you know what, um, there, there's no doubt that here in Ontario, people uh, tend to bounce back and forth between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Uh, but I, I think uh, folks are, are taking a real hard look at, at what comes next for Ontario. I mean, they've, they've certainly been kicking my tires, if you will. They've been kicking the tires of uh, Patrick Brown. And come June 7th of this year, uh, people have an important decision to make. And that's, that decision is what, what comes next for Ontario. You know, what, what is the next, uh, uh, you know, the next direction for this province? And, and that's the decision folks are, are going to have to make. And so, you know, I come from our hometown, Hamilton, and, I'm a pretty uh, down-to-earth person. Uh, for me, it's about listening to people uh, and trying to actually make life better for folks. And that's what I did when I was a city councillor and as an MPP, and now I'm, uh, I believe that I'm doing the same thing as a, as a party leader, is actually trying to bring forward uh, ideas and thoughtful plans that, that don't address me and my political needs and don't address well-connected insiders, uh, but actually address the concerns of everyday Ontarians. So, Andrea, why are we spending $15 million to redesign our, our hydro bills? And, and is this, you know, because before we were all yelling that we never know where the money's going. Uh, we pay this. We don't know to what adjustment or what fund or wherever it's going. Will this redesign, do you think, explain where that money is going? What's the need for this? Well, I mean, I don't believe that for a minute. I mean, I don't know why we're spending $15 million. People don't need, you know, to have their their bills redesigned, they need to have their bills lowered. I mean, let's face it, hydro rates have gone up, hydro bills have gone up by 300% under the Liberals. That's where the focus should be, uh, not on redesigning them to uh, to help promote the Liberals' uh, uh, plans or to, uh, you know, to, to, to give some, you know, private firm the $15 million to, uh, you know, to change things up. I mean, change for the sake of change is not good enough. I mean, let's Let's actually change things in a way that uh, are focused on getting those bills down, not just uh, changing the way they look. So do you think this is just about promoting the, the fair energy deal, or do you think that this will help explain some of those questions that, that people want answers to? Well, again, I mean, uh, the, the proof will be in the pudding, uh, but I have to say $15 million um, is a lot of money uh, for redesigning a bill. I mean, I... You know that's a, that's a lot of money, and that money, of course, is paid for uh, by the ratepayers in their uh, in their rates. Uh, and so again, we have a utility that is uh, uh, in private hands now, largely um, that's making these decisions and not sensitive to the important pieces, which are 
more about what people pay on the bills. I mean, let's face it, this is a, a utility now that's been privatized by Kathleen Wynne uh, that just went for a rate increase uh, well over 4%. I mean, are they not paying attention to the fact that people can't afford the bills now? Uh, never mind uh, with even more increases. Uh, it's very, very worrisome. They're, uh, they're a, a private corporation now that, uh, that, uh, uh, that we have very little control over, and whose goal is more about return on investment to shareholders uh, than it is about making sure uh, our electricity costs are affordable in our province. I know we're waiting to see these new bills, but have, has it been explained to us other than explaining, uh, you know, punting the uh, the payment for the for the Green Energy Act down another ten years to our kids? Uh, do, do we know what the actual difference is in these two bills between the new one and the old one? Uh, you know, not as not as far as I know, and I guess uh, as I said, that so I guess we'll all be able to see whether we're thinking we're getting the value or not uh, uh, for the money. Um, it'll be, you know, customers of Hydro One directly that will be seeing those bills. Um, whereas, you know, for example, here in here in Hamilton, uh, we'll be getting our bills continuously from Electra, which yeah. we have been getting. And you've seen on those Electra bills now the little advertising that's on there about the Fair Energy Plan. So we've seen those changes at the, at our own utility. But of course, the Hydro One customers who get direct billing from Hydro One will be able to determine, you know, whether they feel that this fifteen million dollars. Uh, is of value, but you know the rest of us are also paying for it, right? As a, because that, that corporation uh, has direct billing yeah. in terms of its own customers as well as the transmission uh, work that gets done, right? We were just talking to uh, Steve Applin, publisher of uh, Emission Track, uh, and and agrees with you that, uh, that 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 electricity should not have been uh, deregulated. But question back whether you can roll back regulation. I know you want to buy back uh, Hydro One. Is this possible? Is it worth it? Well, I mean, the is it worth it part is something I think that the public is going to have a say on because um, we know now that uh, when Patrick Brown brought his uh, platform forward a couple weeks ago uh, that the Conservatives are quite happy with the Liberal plan. So you have two parties that are quite happy with uh, the way electricity is uh, being dealt with in this province. You have one party that says uh, we can actually make a change and bring it back into uh, a, a, a utility that's operated in the public interest. Uh, it'll take us longer than what we initially uh, put out in our plan, uh, which is about a year ago now, almost a year ago, that we put a plan out uh, to, um, you know, to bring it back into public hands. But we had always said that that plan uh, will be adjusted uh, based on how many shares got sold off. And, of course, now we know the government sold off quite a few of the shares. Uh, and also what the share price is going to be. But the, the thing to remember is that the financing of that plan, it happens internally from the dividends. And so it's not going to come from any other, you know, tax uh, vehicle. Uh, it's going to come directly from the um, the internal um, sh- uh, shares, right, uh, or rather dividends to buy back those shares. So we had thought we could get that done at the time when 15% had been sold off uh, within an eight-year time frame. Now that... Uh, now that we have well over 40% sold off, um, you know, it's going to take us a longer time frame. But I do believe uh, that, and you said it yourself a few minutes ago, it's not just us, uh, that now, of course, it's the next generation that we have to worry about. And we know that our, our kids and grandkids are going to pay for the uh, uh, the mistakes that Kathleen Wynne made and her, her attempts to try to buy votes with that $40 uh, billion scheme is uh, it's going to affect our, the next generation. That's unacceptable, uh, and so that's why we're saying well, let's let's fix it not just you know for ourselves, but let's fix it so that the next generation and the next generation after that 
can have an electricity system uh, that's operated in the public interest the way it was for, you know, for a century, more than a century here in Ontario. Uh, is this, especially uh, the rejigging of the bill, and as you mentioned, not everyone gets a Hydro One bill, so maybe not uh, front and center for them, but $15 million to redesign these, is this resonating with Ontarians? Are they still upset about all of this stuff, or are they more interested in, you know, like the battle with Tim Hortons? Well, I mean, it's, I, think, I don't think people um, are, are interested in only one thing exclusively, and so I think that there are lots of pieces that... Uh, uh, that uh, are of interest to folks, that, as people that are engaged in, you know, in what's happening in terms of uh, government, whether that's provincial, municipal, or federal, for that matter. I don't think it's, it's uh, mutually exclusive, but I do know that the electricity system and the, the hydro bills are something that, I mean, they really do prevent people from uh, from having uh, the kind of quality of life that they deserve here. The costs are just outrageously high, uh, and it's, you know, it's because of decisions that have been made uh, by liberals, over the last 14 years, and certainly conservatives before them. Uh, being a Hamiltonian, Andrea, I can't let you, you go without hearing your thoughts on uh, the whole Tim Hortons issue and the Premier calling uh, Tim Hortons bullies. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, look, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're in a situation where uh, largely I think people would have agreed that the minimum wage needed to go up. We've been trying to get Kathleen Wynne to increase the minimum wage and the Liberals to increase the minimum wage for, for a long time now. We we wanted $10 in 2010. We tried to get them to move to $12 in 2012. In fact, it was not even at $12 at the end of December, you know, just that, this past year. Uh, so because Kathleen Wynne chose to increase the minimum wage in a way that was the most politically advantageous for her, in other words, so she could get a boost in the polls right before an election, that's why she did things the way she did them. And unfortunately, although I believe that the minimum wage should be at $15 an hour, uh, I, I think that it's unfortunate that workers now have to fight against things like rollbacks in other areas uh, because Kathleen Wynne decided to do this in a way that was, you know, of a political interest to her. And that's, that's a, a shameful thing, and frankly, that's what makes people so disappointed in Kathleen Wynne. And that's why this province has seen so much, da- so much damage done by the Liberals is because they've operated in a way that wasn't about the best interest of Ontarians and the public and people. It was every single thing was a political calculation about how it would be better for Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals. And, and you know, that's why we're in the situation. I feel badly for those important workers and, frankly, for other uh, workers who are now, you know, who are now still fighting uh, to try to have a decent living. Uh, and, um, and for the, a lot of those, uh, you know, you know, true small you know, mom and pops, and I'm not talking about, you know, big, you know, corporations like Tim Hortons, but, you know, small mom and pops who, who ended up in a bit of a scramble uh, when um, when the calendar turned over to 2018. Andrea Horvath has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP. Andrea, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure as always, Scott. You take care in this crazy weather. You too. Yeah, watch the driving. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Using satellites, some researchers have revealed that there is ice underneath the crust of Mars. Didn't we know that? Uh, But boulders, too. And here's the other thing, too, that I want to talk to Paul Delaney about. Uh, Scientists closer to unveiling source of mysterious bursts from a distant object. An object is producing multiple short, powerful, fast radio bursts. But scientists don't know why. Is somebody trying to talk to us?
Is there something out there? Uh, let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, Happy New Year. Thanks for taking the time to join us. And Happy New Year to you too, Scott. So, uh, is there something out there trying to get a hold of us? What do you mean there's radio bursts? Is there a well, radio? Is there a radio? Is there a radio? Is there a radio station out there on Mars that we didn't know about? What is this? Uh, no, I'm afraid not. Uh, but but there certainly has been over the last several uh, years. In fact, I guess really over a decade now, uh, various fast radio bursts that we've been picking up that have had us scratching our heads. I mean, normally when we're listening to radio uh, information coming to us. It is uh, fairly rhythmic, it's fairly periodic, but these fast radio bursts sort of come and go on timescales that were sometimes as short as a fraction of a second, but incredibly powerful. Uh, we think we have narrowed them down to various uh, what we call uh, stellar remnants, uh, the um, uh, black holes, neutron stars, and they are transmitting energy at us uh, as a result of their, their local circumstances. So it what forced us to rewrite literally a lot of our textbooks about these objects. So what is a radio burst? What is it that, 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 that scientists are receiving? Okay, so uh, a, a radio burst is a, a fairly generic term. Uh, when people turn on their radio, so as to speak, they tune into a particular frequency, and depending upon what is uh, at that frequency, they will hear information. And it could be your radio station, it could be one of your competitors, and so on. When we're eavesdropping on the universe... Most of the frequencies have got a lot of background hiss because there's a phenomenal number of differing activities that are happening throughout a galaxy, and so you just end up literally with a hiss. But periodically, particularly, for example, with neutron stars, what we call pulsars, a beam of radiation which is being emitted by that object sweeps across our planet, and at particular frequencies, all of a sudden, you know, the intensity of the signal just skyrockets. And so a fast radio burst is, in fact, just that. It is, at a particular frequency, a phenomenal amount of energy that is way, way, way above the background noise that we're normally listening to, uh, and it comes to us for a relatively short period of time, and then it goes away again. So this isn't uncommon? It, um, I, I won't say they're as common as, as stars, for example, but they're not like winning the lottery. No, we, we have picked up uh, several dozen objects that are transmitting these fast radio bursts over the last few years. How do you interpret these? How long does it take to receive these? Well, the, the time to reception depends upon how far away they are. And sometimes these objects have come from distant galaxies. They are that powerful. Uh, but more often than not, they're from within our own galaxy. But they may have been traveling towards us for anything up to fifty to 100,000 years because they could be clear across the galaxy. So the travel time depends upon its distance. But the closer ones might only be a paltry twenty or 30,000 light years away. But the length of time that the radio burst lasts, as I said before, could last literally just fractions of seconds. Can you identify where they came from, their origin? Generally speaking, that, that, that was one of the biggest challenges, to try and figure out what the, the, the progenitor was of these objects. Uh, and those first few that we found, uh, or the first few radio bursts that we heard, we couldn't triangulate, we could not figure out where they were coming from in space because the signal was too short. Now we've gotten better at it. Some of the longer uh, fast radio burst uh, signals have allowed us to turn multiple telescopes or have multiple telescopes listening in, and then it's just old-fashioned triangulation. You know, from differing parts of the Earth, this is the direction in space that the signal came from, and where the signals uh, meet, 
you find your object. So uh, these are blips of energy. It does make a physical sound, though? Uh, no, these are frequencies that are outside of the audible. So okay. we're, we're talking about other areas of the electromagnetic spectrum. So obviously it would take a certain piece of equipment to pick these up. Radio telescopes, that, that's exactly right. But radio telescopes all around the planet are listening in on a multitude of differing frequencies all the time. Uh, sometimes we're not pointed in that direction, but the, power, the signal is so powerful that you still pick it up anyway. Uh, there are survey instruments out there which are looking uh, at differing parts of the sky in big, broad sheets. So we're not listening in for one particular object. We're looking in to a region of space. So finding these objects today with the, uh, the, the greater number of, shall I say, survey instruments or rather, it's getting easier and easier. And of course, that means the triangulation process gets easier and easier. But we are always listening to what's going on in space. We're trying to. Uh, we're both listening and looking. Uh, you know, the number of survey instruments that are out there looking for near-Earth asteroids, you know, the objects that might cause, you know, humanity great peril. Uh, that's the one that often gets a lot of, uh, shall I say, media attention. Uh, but we're doing exactly those types of surveys in the radio spectrum as well as the visible spectrum. So can sound or, uh, or that spectrum tell you as much as, as the visual? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, think of the universe as, as a, uh, a, a huge unknown, which in large measure it still is, and every frequency is a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And if you turn over each of the pieces, if you listen in on each of the frequencies, you eventually get a complete picture of what it is that the universe is trying to tell you. So yes, every frequency has a, a gem of information associated with it. Uh, you know, sometimes we can do that from orbit, sometimes we can listen in from the ground, but all of the pieces have got a story to tell. This almost reminds me of the Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who. You know, we are here, we are here, we are here. But that's not the case, is it? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I like the analogy. You got to get, you get yourself one of those units that works, you know. Get, you know, just draw it up. It, looks, it probably wouldn't fit in your place anyway. It's, probably wouldn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, d d is there anything uh, new here? Is this just another news story about space? Or is there any sort of, what, what can we learn from this? Uh, well, I, I guess it extends our understanding of these, the, the objects that are now in um, uh, the stellar remnant phase. So stars you know, get born, they live, and they die. What happens after they die? Does the story stop, so as to speak? And the answer is no, it doesn't, because they are still generating uh, differing phenomena. They are still giving us insights into not just them, but also their local environments, because they peer through the interstellar medium, and these signals get modified by their transition through the interstellar medium. So it, it, it is still telling us new information, but now it's at the twilight of the, the original star's lifetime. All right, so let's go now to uh, ice on Mars. Um, uh, beneath the uh, dust of Mars lies frozen water. We knew this, didn't we? I mean, there's nothing new here, is there? No, there really isn't anything new here. The, the only difference is that we're actually now getting some imagery from some uh, very steep slopes on Mars, and we're actually able to sort of almost see through the sheets of ice, giving us a little bit more insight into what is beneath the surface. So the fact that there is ice beneath the surface of Mars, as you say, we've known that now for quite a while. Uh, many satellites 
have shown huge amounts of uh, ice sheets beneath the surface. But we've not yet until recently been able to literally look edge on as if we're looking through the ice rather than looking down on top of a dust-covered ice. And that gives us a new insight into the areas beneath the surface. And some of these layers are incredibly close to the surface. That's perhaps the other piece of news that is a little uh, new. We knew there was ice beneath the surface, but the ground-penetrating radar couldn't tell us how far beneath. Now we know that there are at least eight differing areas on the surface of Mars, which are literally just a meter or two beneath the surface. Uh, This uh, report says that erosion is exposing that. What does that mean? uh, Well, Mars is a very dynamic world. There is a a phenomenal amount of wind on the surface of Mars. And just like on Earth, wind causes erosive-type action. So you're steadily uncovering the ice sheets, but it it still takes time. It's better if we can look uh, down the side of these slopes and literally look along the ice sheets from the side rather than from above. It gives us more insight into the planetary formation process. You know, you've probably heard of us uh, drilling for uh, ice cores in Antarctica, mm. and when we pull up that big ice core as a function of depth, it talks to us about the past climatic conditions that were present in Antarctica. Well, looking as we are now at these ice sheets, meters below the surface, we're actually looking at the changes that were taking place in the Mars climatic situation over the last, well, I don't know whether or not we're talking millions of years here or hundreds of millions of years, I haven't read the paper yet, but the fact that we can see edge on into these ice sheets and each ice sheet is containing differing uh, materials and are differing thicknesses tells us about Mars's past climate. Hmm. So th- that, that's the excitement associated with finding these ice sheets. Not so much that they are there, we knew they were there, but now we can see them edge on. We've got some really neat and clear views and it talks to us about Mars' past climate. That's incredible. Uh, all ice, is there any water under there? If you drill down, if you could do that, is the whole thing just frozen? There is lots of speculation out there that there are artesian reservoirs of liquid water beneath the surface of Mars. There's lots of speculation that some of that actually leaks out onto the surface and forms brines for creating what we call uh, recurring slope linear uh, you know, uh, um, lines down these steep slopes. But we've not found definitive evidence yet, at least not from what I have seen. There's lots of debate. But no definitive evidence that says there is water beneath the surface of Mars, but there is a lot of strong sentiment feeling, if you will, that we will find that. It's just harder to find it because it is really buried. You can't get it to the surface very easily. Uh, and, of course, you know, once it gets on the surface, it can't survive for very long. But are there artesian uh, reservoirs beneath the surface? We believe so. And they would have to be warm, would they not? Obviously. Warmer. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't want to go swimming personally in this. It's not, it's, um, not the, it's not the Banff Hot Springs here. <laughs> no, we're not talking Banff Hot Springs at all. But the fact that it is liquid, of course, if you can reach it reasonably easily, uh, you know, that just makes it easier for, if you will, colonists. I mean, at the moment, they can go over and dig up the ice and melt it inside their dome, and they've got water to drink. If you can sort of run a pipe down into a reservoir, well, it makes it just even easier, doesn't it? Uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, earlier on this week, I uh, had the pleasure of uh, talking to Colonel Chris Hadfield. He's uh, bringing his tour to Hamilton here February 8th. Uh, what does it say that we've got an astronaut or astronauts that, that go out and, and sell this stuff? Uh, obviously, there's a great interest in it. There is. I mean, it, it, all of your listeners, I think, have a latent interest in looking at the night sky, 
seeing what's out there, exploring the solar system. You know, they might not want to go and do it themselves, but it, it, we've got an insatiable appetite for reading up about it. Uh, everybody loves coming and looking through a telescope here at the York Observatory, for example. You know, it, it just captures people's imagination. Uh, it, you know, the fact that Chris became an astronaut tells you that he really wanted to, you know, uh, become part of the high frontier, the final frontier. And he wants to bring us all along for the ride. You remember when he was aboard the ISS, he, he tweeted up a storm. You know, he sang up a storm, and now he yeah. wants to continue carrying on that message so that you and I can continue to be excited and, I guess, ultimately continue to support people like the Canadian Space Agency to be able to be part of uh, NASA to have public funding go towards these types of endeavors. So, I mean, you know, uh, he, he's doing it for, in my opinion, all the right reasons, including the fact that it's a lot of fun for him. Uh, it was interesting because uh, I was asking I was asking about different questions that people ask him, and he joked that adults ask him the dumbest questions. They say things like, what's it like in space? And it's like, well, that's like answering, what's it like on Earth? Whereas he said the kids will come <laughs> up with, like the young people will come up with incredibly uh, intelligent questions that just blows, that just blow his mind. Well, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, I've got an office full of students at the moment, and they do exactly the same thing. You know, they come up with the darndest questions, and those are the things that, uh, you know, keep you on your toes. Uh, that being said, we chatted a bit about uh, re-entry or, or liftoff and re-entry. He said this was by far the scariest and most violent and, and part of the whole mission or missions. And uh, this is something that requires just hyper uh, hyper attention and, and and every sort of brain cell that you have. Uh, obviously, you're not surprised to hear that. No, and uh, anybody who's flown in a plane will probably agree with that. That arguably the most challenging and the most traumatic is is landing and takeoff, takeoff and landing. Uh, you know, in between time, if you know, you've got nice smooth air, you're sitting up there sipping on your glass of wine, you're eating food, you're watching your TV, and so on and so forth. But during the descent, during the ascent, that's when you know, pressure begins to change in your eardrums. You know, if your pilot's not really on their game, then they hit the tarmac very hard, uh, and so on and so forth. So landing and takeoff of any vehicle, including a spacecraft, is by far the most challenging. And unfortunately, when you think back to the space disasters that have taken place over the last 50 years, they haven't happened in space. We've actually not ever lost anybody in space. It's all during the, the launch and the landings where we've lost people. You know, you bring up a valid point, and I never, had a, I never thought to ask him this, but, you know, my wife always complains she needs gum or candy when coming down in an airplane. What's it, what does it do to your ears when you're coming down in a spaceship? Uh, well, uh, he would be the better person to ask in that regard, but I'm sure they have the same pressure differential problems. Uh, you know, despite the fact that the cabin is pressurized, there is phenomenal change in pressure which is taking place around them. And so I'm sure that was being felt by the astronauts. I'm sure they were sort of yawning and, and trying to chew gum as rapidly as they could as well. But that's a question that, you know, would be best asked by, uh, asked to one of the astronauts. Unfortunately, I have not had the opportunity. I know you'd like to, though, Paul. I would indeed. Uh, Paul Delaney with us, professor of astronomy at York University. Paul, tell us when the public can come and see your telescope. We're open every Wednesday night of the year except between Christmas and New Year. So at this time of the year, 7.30 to 9.30 every Wednesday night on the main York campus. That time changes in the summer, of course, because you know, sunset is a little later. We do 9 to 11 all through the summer. So if anybody is in the neighborhood over the next couple of months till the beginning of April, 
7.30 to 9.30. We're open rain or shine, but we can only use the telescopes if it's clear. Paul Delaney, Professor of Astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.